You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. This is the midweek debrief, midweek debrief number 10. And uh, welcome back to everybody who tuned in for the midweek debrief. Thanks so much for subscribing to the podcast and sharing the podcast with others and for supporting the podcast by clicking the donate link at Anchor FM and helping support me during these lean times. And this is April 1st, 2020, during the shelter at home order that has now been extended to the end of May and the coronavirus continues its trek around the world, this pandemic. And as a consequence of being at home and working in this way and scrambling and hustling to keep my congregation afloat and to keep my congregation intact when we're all apart and looking at questions of need versus want and necessity and what other people have and don't have and what people are afraid or fearful of or what they're panicked about or what they're angry about, uh, especially the last month then, um, I've become, I don't know, much more nostalgic in the past month. And it's my opinion anyways, is that nostalgia is good. It's a good place to visit, but it's not a good place to live. And I see a lot of people when they reflect on the past or they ruminate about their past and they go through their file cabinet of of past memories, one of the things that I know I suffered from in the past in particular was that I did not appreciate that our memories are very fungible. They're very spongy. And they also, our minds do a great job of filtering out trauma (laughs) and especially self-inflicted pain and self-inflicted damage. And... At the same time, at least my brain, one, it, it certainly filters out and photoshops memories to the extent that I can remember some things, snippets. I think in the previous podcast, I talked about people that had influenced me, people that were my heroes. And I think I'll probably talk about that again in this episode in the context of nostalgia. But I can remember my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Olson, the way that she walked. I remember her hair and the way that she styled her hair and that kind of 1960s kind of trapped in the 1960s way of of putting her hair up but I just remember the way she walked and her the gait her step Mr. Pellisring my fourth grade teacher who was a big influence on me a hero of mine I remember his mustache and I can kind of remember his voice to a certain extent and things like that right we remember pieces bits and they may or may not be accurate because I don't have videotape I don't have any recordings of those people. I don't have their voice on audio. And so it's all there in my mind, but it's cloudy, it's spotty, it's pieces, but it's not the whole picture. It's not even really half or a quarter of the whole picture. It's just, sometimes it's just impressions. It's just emotions. Maybe it's a smell that sets us off. I was at the table the other day, and for no reason whatsoever, something hit my nose just right, And I said to my wife, I really want a cigarette right now. Like, for the first time, excuse me, in forever. I smoked until, I started smoking when I was about 17, 16, 17, and then smoked really heavily through college and on the other side of college and quit finally when I was about 28. And 
I can tell you now that the hardest drug that I've ever had to kick, the hardest, the most difficult, the most, what do you want to say, the most enrapturing, the most enslaving chemical that I've ever had to free myself from has been cigarettes, for sure. And it was just the way that this smell hit my nose that all of a sudden, and there was no, there was no reason for me to want to crave a cigarette. It was just something hit me and I smelled this something and it was just a moment. And all of a sudden my brain just fired. All the neurons exploded and said, we need a camel light right now. And I didn't, of course, smoke a camel light because, you know, why bother <laughs> at this point in my life and why ruin my health and my well-being and why set that example for my kids? And also, ultimately, why give in to that momentary impulse? And nostalgia can definitely lead us down that path, I think, where we have those, those moments, moments of weakness, for example, and those impulses that come, those emotional impulses that come on the tail or in the wake of those nostalgic moments where we remember a girlfriend or a boyfriend, a failed relationship, we remember a job, we remember a moment in time with friends or family or relatives, or we were in Louisiana when this happened, or I was in Key West when that happened, or I was in um, Northern Washington State when this happened, or I was on the mall in Washington, D.C. All of these things, they pop up and they, they flood you with these memories. And like I said, a lot of it's just impression. Some of it's just emotional memory. And some of them are very clear. And it's easy, I think, then to not recognize the power that nostalgia has for both good and bad. That nostalgia, I think, when you visit those places, for example, last week, for whatever reason, I was just nostalgic. And I've been nostalgic for my childhood. And I think a part of it is not necessarily like I miss my childhood, but rather kind of thinking back on the things about my childhood that are are good. They're good memories. I don't have a lot of good memories from my childhood, but the older I get, the more I try and mine my memory to sift out good things about my childhood because so much of my childhood was about abuse and so much of it was about survival that over time I just sifted out the good things and pushed those to the side and said, well, it wasn't that way because everything about my childhood was bad. And it wasn't. No, I mean, even for those of us who were abused growing up or grew up in that kind of an environment, there's still moments that aren't tragic and they're not, um, they're not destructive. They're not, uh, they're not negative. And so I've done that, and especially with this quarantine and being at home with my kids all day, every day, and seeing myself in them, aspects of myself and each one of their personalities, it's definitely kind of given me that question, that little itch that I scratched. And so last week I went back and I watched Scooby-Doo, the 1960s and 70s Scooby-Doo, the, the OG Scooby-Doo, the good one. And, you know, they're bad. <laughs> they're bad cartoons. And, uh, <laughs> but they're great at the same time. And I just watched them and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. And I've gone back and gotten back into the Dead Kennedys and the Replacements and Social Distortion, my favorite band, Social Distortion, and The Clash, and early punk and SoCal punk from the early to mid-80s. And because that's my comfort zone, I, that, that gives me comfort. Holiday in Cambodia, the, the guitar, the opening guitar line in Holiday in Cambodia, or 
um, Alex Chilton, that op- those opening chords of Alex Chilton by The Replacements or just any song by Social Distortion. <laughs> um, there's just a comfort to that. And, you know, there's just those moments when you got to take off your clothes and get in the hot tub and let the bubbles, you know, relax you. And in your memory, for me, it's those things. It's Scooby-Doo, it's um, the music, it's comic books. Like, I looked up Neil Adams, for example. He's a famous writer. He did detective comics in the 70s, Batman. My favorite Batmans are by Neil Adams. I love his storylines. And just looked him up on YouTube, and he's got a YouTube channel, so I started listening to his YouTube channel and following what he does. And again, I'm visiting my childhood. But I'm visiting it for the purpose of asking, was there anything good about my childhood? Is there anything that I can draw from my childhood as far as the nostalgia, the memories that can help me in the present tense, again, be a better husband and father and pastor and just a human being all around and and recognize that everything about my past wasn't doom and gloom and that I've chosen over the years to neglect or ignore the good things. And there's even good things about my mom and dad that I can draw from that too, to recognize that even though they didn't love me the way I needed to be loved, and even though that was often an abusive relationship, there were moments where there was tenderness and there were moments where there was kindness and they, they loved me the best they could, but that that love was just beaten up and brokenhearted and twisted up by the way they grew up and by Vietnam and my dad's experience there and coming out the other side of it, then I don't, forgive the abuse, but I can forgive the abusers. And I do. And so I I draw comfort from visiting my past and visiting those memories and working on myself, so to speak, but yet with a healthy dose of sobriety and sincerity and to say, okay, I'm going to visit, but I'm not going to live here. I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole and all of a sudden everything in my life has to be about the cartoons I watched when I was growing up or the comic books I read or this experience that I'm going to try and repeat in the present tense because something I've been thinking about then that I recognize about nostalgia is that it's this dichotomy is that there's comfort there in the past, but there's also regret there in the past because, or maybe the past gives us a present, you know, tense regret because at least for myself, when I was younger, I was freer and the world was bigger. I think about this. I took my kids back to one of the places that I grew up. It's about two hours from our house. So last summer they were curious about where I grew up and the stories I tell. So I took them back to where I grew up at. I took them back to my neighborhood, drove them around. And the first thing that I realized is how much smaller everything is as an ad- when you're an adult versus when you're a child. The world was so big when I was little. My backyard was so big. The tree there was so big. And the world was so big. And it was so full of magic and wonder and monsters. And it, you think about that when you're a child, that's the way that children see the world, is it's just this big, open opportunity for adventure. And some of those adventures that we go on when we're little and that we discover that there are monsters, but they're not necessarily furry and fanged with claws and hiding underneath the bed or at the back of the closet or behind the next tree, but that they might actually live in your home with you, or they might be the bully down the street, or they might be your friend's parents. It depends. And that, I think, is how we lose that sense of wonder and amazement and curiosity as we get older, is that we learn the truth, and that both the heroes and the monsters 
they looked like anybody else. And heroes look the same as monsters quite often. And it's only through what they do and their behavior, maybe the way they talk, that it's revealed to us, their true character. But I wonder too, and I've talked about this before, but I wonder if when we lose that sense of wonder and we lose that sense of the bigness of the world and the adventures that await us, that we lose our creativity, we lose our imagination, we lose our that freedom to think and to create and to look at everything with that sense of wonder and to just appreciate how remarkable it is that this is here and I get to interact with it right now or engage with this or just look at it. And just uh, the sense of wonder about ourselves that we're here right now. How did we get here? Where are we going? What's the goal of life? And when you're little, you don't necessarily know how to ask those questions or put words to those questions, but that's what it means to be a child is it's all about discovering. And with that, it comes a sense of freedom that even, you know, you could just run out the door, for example. And because my home life wasn't the best, I spent so much time away from my house. So it was like, wake up, leave. It's dark, come home, repeat, you know. And this, even going from my house to my best friend's house and biking and taking all the little dirt paths that, uh, you know, me and all the other kids had carved out in, you know, through people's backyards and down alleys and through the slough and over the, the, the woods over here and then through this hollow and around and so forth. Like all of those paths were a daily adventure because you never knew who you were going to run into or what you were going to run into or what you were going to see. And that was a part of the excitement of, of doing that, of going out the door in the morning. And like I said, I see so many people, and certainly I fall victim to it as well, is that we forget that the world is pretty big. And despite mass transit and the internet and, and our access to people, places, and things, the world is a big place. And it is full of wonder, and it is full of magic, and it is full of mysteries and adventures just waiting for us. But we have to go out the front door. We have to get up, and we have to go out the front door if we want to be a part of that, if we want to go on those adventures. And nostalgia, for me anyways, it allows me to revisit my past to ask that question, what have I lost? But then what can I regain in the present tense? And for me, it is, it's a sense of comfort that Scooby-Doo and Batman comics and biking to my friend's house and playing outside and, you know, playing make-believe, fighting the Nazis for example, which my friend and I did quite often, the Nazis of the Viet Cong, those were our primary enemies in the fields and in the woods, is that, you know, what, what do we do at the present tense to maintain our creativity and to remain that childlike sense of wonder and curiosity, not childish, but childlike, and to recognize that we're adults and we have adult responsibilities and that's necessary too. And because we, we live in the world of bills and mortgages and you know, put gas in the car and so forth and so on. But at the same time, does that mean that we have to completely give up on a childlike sense of wonder and curiosity? Does that mean that we have to give up on video games and cartoons and comic books? Or can we appreciate those things for what they are and not treat them as a negative? Oh, this is a big time suck. What are you wasting your time playing Doom for, for example? And the answer is I watch Firefly and I play Doom and I read graphic novels because I like them and they are comforting to me. 
And it's other people that make me or try and get me to regret, quote unquote, wasting that time. It's only a waste of time if I'm not learning anything from it. It's only a waste of time if I'm not enjoying it. If it's a chore, if it's a burden, and if other people see it as that, again, that's their opinion, that's their choice. I don't have any control over that. But it's not my opinion, it's not my choice. And what do I care about the opinions of other people that don't matter? Because there's plenty of people, of course, that will tell me that Firefly's the best show ever. (laughs) And it is. And that reading The Killing Joke or The Dark Knight or Ronan by Frank Miller or The Watchmen by Alan Moore or all the other graphic novels, the Howard Chaykin shadow graphic novels. I love The Shadow. I love Howard Chaykin, the way he wrote that. Whatever it might be is that those are the things that they they give me comfort. Because to me, those were always there for me when I was little. And much like I've talked about addiction, where alcohol and drugs are always there for you, and they always forgive you, and they always are there to say, hey, I can make you you the pain go away. Well, in a kind of similar but not as malignant sense, the comic books, the graphic novels, the cartoons, the video games, they're also there to comfort me. And they've always been there to comfort me since I played Atari for the first time. And my friend and I would stay up all night long on weekends and have Atari Olympics and play all these different games, Atari games, and then keep score. And then at the end of the weekend, add up the score. Back in the day when you couldn't save your games, you just had to stay up for 24 or 48 hours and play them, especially if you were good. And I remember we played Breakout for 24 hours. For those of you who are old enough to remember Breakout on the Atari, yeah. That was, I mean, yeah. People talk about Dark Souls today being difficult. Go back and play an Atari game with no save function. And there was no way to find helps for the game either. You just had to figure it out. But those things were always there for me. And they were always a comfort. Because they weren't just an um, isolated experience either. I would read comics with friends. And I would go to the comic book store with friends. And I'd play video games with my friends. And so it was a social thing. And we were in the same room with each other and biking in the woods, and shooting BB guns, and having bottle rocket wars, all that was social. We did those things together. And I I suppose that's a part of the comfort, too, is as you get older, and it's more and more difficult to find people, at least for me, it's more and more difficult to find people that share my interests, and like to geek out on stuff like that, and go down those musical rabbit holes, and talk about early 80s punk rock, or argue about the best Radiohead album, or whatever it might be. Why the Eagles suck. <laughs> Those kinds of things. Um, yeah, it's it's something I think that we don't take seriously enough. That when we were younger, we were freer because the world was open to us. And we had a childlike sense of wonder about the world. Now, that's not to say that we were actually that free. I mean, I was. My parents just basically said, be home by dark. And... Yeah, there was certainly some... I grew up 12 miles from Jacob Wetterling and where Jacob Wetterling and other boys were kidnapped. So it wasn't like my world was idyllic and safe. It was just that we were naive to it. And so, yeah, if you don't know who Jacob Wetterling is, go ahead and Google that. But uh, yeah, I grew up 12 miles from his house, from where he was abducted at. And so there was still danger in the world. There was still objective evil in the world. It's just that we were so naive to it because we didn't have the internet we didn't have mass communication like we do today. And we didn't have the 24-hour news cycle necessarily constantly in people's faces trying to invent stories to keep our attention. 
But that goes to my second point too, last point. I talked about this the other day because Dan Cranshaw was talking about it on the Jocko Willing podcast recently. I think it's episode 222 maybe. Is when I was growing up, heroes were, well, to, to put it simply, when I was growing up, heroes were ass kickers. This is why I love 80s action movies. Predator, uh, The Road Warrior, Aliens, these kinds of things, these kinds of movies. Rocky, The Rockies, uh, Rambo, Cliffhanger, the original Cliffhanger, but also Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, Escape from New York, like one of the greatest trilogies ever, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. And when I was growing up, heroes kicked ass. And it's only been very recently then that culturally our heroes have changed from people who kick ass to people who get their ass kicked. In fact, the aggrieved victim, as Dan Crenshaw talks about it, the aggrieved victim, and Jordan Peterson, I think, talks about this too, the aggrieved victim all of a sudden has become the heroic character, the heroic archetype in our culture. And the more aggrieved you are and the more victimized you are, the more virtuous you are. Versus when I was growing up, it was the road warrior. It was Mad Max. And it was Dutch in Predator. And it was Rambo. It was the ass kicker that was the hero. And this person had courage and was a person of integrity, deep integrity, profound integrity and dignity. And they were heroic because they overcame great odds. It was always some challenge that was greater than themselves. And they had to overcome that. And it might have been cartoonish and it might have been outlandish and fantastical. But the moral was that heroes overcome challenges. Heroes adapt and overcome. They figure out a way to succeed even in the face of overwhelming odds. And that's gone almost entirely from our culture now. It exists in pockets. It exists in podcasts like this one and other podcasts in this vein. And there's certainly an audience for it. And I think there's certainly a, a group of people that are hungry for it. But I just saw a statistic and I haven't followed up on it. So it's more at this point, my opinion or just I'm thinking out loud about it. But the, the number of domestic violence cases in the past five years that have um, been reported, women now more and more are the perpetrators of domestic violence over and against men. And when I was growing up, it was almost entirely men that were reported for domestic violence. And maybe that's just a difference in reporting and how it's reported. Maybe it's a difference in awareness culturally. But this statistic that came out the other day or that was cited the other day in this article that I have to go back and read again was women are now emerging as not quite, you know, equal on equal footing when it comes to domestic violence, but they're gaining rapidly on men. And the, the point of the article was to ask the question, what's happened in our culture that women now are kind of almost on equal footing with men when it comes to these matters of domestic violence. And I think that's a part of it, is that when I was growing up, I was taught that a hero is someone who kicks ass. A hero is a King Arthur uh, or a Roland. A hero is Beowulf. A hero is Robin Hood and Ivanhoe and others like that. It's Batman in all the movie characters I listed. And there was something heroic about that. And it was a virtue. And this is um, a heroic archetype that goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So maybe, because it's been tried and tested over thousands of years, 
that heroic archetype is actually a valid archetype. It's good. It inspires us. It encourages us. It motivates us to be better than ourselves versus the current cultural archetype of getting your ass kicked to be weak, to be a victim, an aggrieved victim, to actually see victimhood as empowering, even though it's actually disempowering, and victimhood as a virtue, even though it's a vice. I mean, can you imagine if Rambo was the aggrieved victim or Dutch was the aggrieved victim and predator or Mad Max was the aggrieved victim and the road warrior and they just started crying and talking about their feelings and asked other people to save them and rescue them? They'd be, you know, in the context of, of, of that genre, they'd be run over and shot. They'd be destroyed. And there is this sense then that we've changed from let's all rise above the status of victim, men and women. I think about this too, actually on this point and going back to talking about my grandma Riley and other people that were my heroes growing up is that my grandma Riley was an abuse victim and she struggled and suffered and she had it hard because she was a woman trying to raise a family in the 60s and 70s when if you were a woman and you were married, especially in rural areas, you didn't have a lot of options. And if you weren't tough and you didn't struggle and you didn't fight to rise above your status and your station in life, you weren't going to get anything. You'd get a handout, but you weren't going to, no one was going to help you up other than to say you need to marry someone and find another husband, which is what a lot of women did, which is how a lot of women ended up with abusive husbands because they just thought, well, I got to marry somebody. I need someone to help and take care of me. And so for my grandma Riley to go through all that she went through to raise four kids and to start her own beauty shop and to become a pillar of the community and a matron in the business community and in her, in her community, she did all of that, but she never used her gender as an excuse either for how she overcome or why she was disadvantaged. She just did what she had to do. And God help you if you brought up her gender <laughs> as an excuse and yet, all of my heroes, when I reflect on this, all of my heroes growing up, ex, you know, almost exclusively, I'd say like nine out of 10 of my heroes are women. Because I was raised by my grandma, I was raised by my aunts. And the neighborhoods that I lived in, there were a lot of girls, but there weren't a lot of boys. So I played mostly with girls. And then my best friend, finally, when I was in, in fifth grade, was a, was Eric, my, a boy, obviously. Um, but that... Most of my most um, powerful influences growing up were women, but they never used their, that as an excuse, their gender as an excuse to teach me how to be a victim or to tell me that I'm toxic or that these virtues that make a hero are bad and I shouldn't seek to live up to those standards that are set by my heroes, the Beowulfs and the Arthurs and the Robin Hoods and the Batmans and these 80s action heroes. But rather they, they recognized that in order to raise me right, so to speak, they had to raise me to think for myself, to be a problem solver, to be a critical thinker, to stand on my own two feet and take care of myself. But at the same time, they were matronly, they were maternal, and they surrounded me with their protection. And they, they shepherded me through childhood because they recognized that I was being abused at home. They recognized I didn't have the most stable home life and they recognized there wasn't a lot they could do to influence that. But what they could do is invite me to stay over the weekends and they'd invite me to stay over in summer breaks and to take me off my parents' hands so that they could have a break. 
and they understood how to phrase it. And they understood how to approach the problem. And they, they taught me then these things. They instilled in me these, these morals and these, these ethical principles. And after I got out of my own way and got clean and sober, I recognized the value of these things. And they became my compass through sobriety and through life. And to this day, then, that being taught by two grandmothers who were both divorced, one married a complete scumbag and the other one stayed unmarried, and being raised by aunts who saw their mother abused by her husband and vowed to never marry men like that, they raised me to treat women, quote-unquote, right, and they raised me to be polite and to be compassionate, but also to recognize that there's strength in that. And that a kind person is a strong person. And that to take personal accountability and take personal responsibility for yourself is empowering. And to demand that other people take responsibility for you is disempowering. And that victimhood and to be an aggrieved victim is very disempowering. It's a very weakening of the foundations type of attitude. And it's no ethic whatsoever. It's actually immoral and it's actually unvirtuous. And so, in my opinion anyways, currently we have this culture then that makes heroes out of victims and actually teaches and inculcates in the public school system, in the media, in movies and TV, in comic books, novels, this heroic archetype that is actually immoral and weak and is not virtuous. And as a consequence then, these heroes of the past, they are jaggy and they are shrill and they don't fit. This is why you see people in the present tense rewriting comic book characters and rewriting history, rewriting the canon of like Star Trek or Star Wars or Doctor Who or whatever, is this is the Marxist move. This is the, the secular postmodern move. If you don't like something, just rewrite its history, retcon it. And so that's what we're seeing right now is the Marxist idea of revising history being made manifest in pop culture. And you can see the pushback from it. And of course, because these people see themselves as victims, they blame their audience. They blame their customers and say, this is all your fault. This comic book isn't selling or this movie didn't do well at the box office or this TV show has low ratings. It's your fault because you're a misogynist. You're a xenophobe. You're a sexist. You're a transphobe. You're this, that, and the other thing. They refuse to take personal responsibility and to hold themselves accountable accountable for their own thoughts and their own beliefs and their own politics and their own actions. And they are surrounded by other people who affirm this heroic, aggrieved victim status. And so they do see themselves as virtuous. They are virtue signaling. And anyone who's not with them then is against them. And so the worst thing that you can be today in my culture, in Western culture, is someone who stands up, takes personal accountability, puts an emphasis on individual integrity and character, encourage moral and physical and intellectual courage to stand up for what is right and to cling to the old ways, these old heroic archetypes, and to recognize that what passes for a hero today is actually a villain. And what passes for strength today in our heroes is actually weakness. And what we hold up as virtue is actually a vice and it's actually immoral. And it's actually destructive. And that as we cling to this victimhood, this ethic of victimhood, we are weakening ourselves as individuals. We're weakening our communities. We're 
we're doing a horrible disservice to our children. We're sending them up to fail, in my opinion, all because we can't recognize that maybe just because something is old, maybe because it's been tried and tested over thousands and thousands of years, maybe it actually has value. Maybe it is important. Maybe it is what contributes to the moral fabric of our society. Maybe an objective appreciation for good and evil is necessary. And that maybe we need more ass kickers and less people getting their ass kicked nowadays. A lot more people that are going to take a personal responsibility and stop apologizing for other people. And ultimately to say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this and I'm going to help other people. And I'm going to take my time and I'm going to take what I've done and I'm going to give it to other people to help them rather than demand that other people give me what they've accomplished and give me what they've done and give me their time because I'm entitled to it. So that's it, rant over. But that's what I've been chewing on this week in particular and thinking about. Um, And yeah, you know, I talked about creativity and doing something creative in a previous episode. I'm going to hammer on that again. What is it that, that fires your imagination? What is it that gives you that sense of wonder, that childlike sense of freedom and the bigness of the world and the, the mystery of the world, the adventures that are outside your door waiting for you? What are you doing to embrace that and enjoy that? And like I said, visit your past memories, but don't live there. And to embrace these heroic archetypes and to embrace the fact that who are your heroes and what is it that makes them heroic? What about them? What attributes? What character attributes? What about their personality or or them as people? Like I said, my grandma never, my grandma Riley never held up or used as an excuse the fact that she was a woman. She just explained it simply. I did this and this is how I had to do it because this was what was in front of me. And if I wanted to get from point A to point B, I had to go through this obstacle. And sometimes it was misogyny. It just was. This is the 50s. And yet she plowed through it. And she didn't call it misogyny. She just put it very matter-of-factly that these, these business owners didn't want me to open up my own shop as a woman, and here's why. And like I said, she didn't use that as an excuse to quit. She used that as a challenge to overcome because no one else was going to do it for her. And that's why she's my hero. Because for all of her many flaws, um, you know, she did it. And she did it for her kids. She did it for me and her grandkids. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. And I wouldn't be the man that I am because of her, without her. And so today, anyways, I'm definitely going to live the best that I can for Margaret and for all that she did to get me here. So thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And that's the end of the midweek debrief. Come back on Sunday. We'll finish up Norman McLean's Young Men in Fire and we'll dive into something else. All right, brother. And sister, love you. We'll see you.